As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey, everybody. Hey. Hey, hey Matt. Hi, Ben. Hey, wel- welcome to this extra special podcast episode. This is the third one we've released in seven days. Which yes. I don't know if we've ever done this before. Nope. We have oftentimes, uh, our normal schedule is one per week. Um, we have released two in the last seven days um, where we did uh, released an extra one um, as part of our series on being a Christian in America. And this is our penultimate episode on being a Christian in America. And we weren't going to have it in the schedule, but uh, Matt, you uh, had this interview with Justin Wallace and you thought, you know what? Uh, this might make a great podcast uh, to put out on our main feed. It was going to be for our patrons only, but yeah, but we decided against yeah, it. Why pa- did we do that, Matt? Well, because uh, Justin Wallace is one of our gravity coaches. He's a good guy, good man. He's, uh, he's, talk- he's wrestling through who to vote for. Hmm. And I thought, this yeah. is the things he's naming and the things he's talking about, I think are part and parcel with where a lot of people are. Not everybody. You might not be where Justin is. You might not be where I am. But I felt like it was a generative conversation that maybe even today, as you're standing in line somewhere to vote <laughs> for hours, <laughs> maybe mm-hmm. this podcast will stir something in you or help yeah. you think through your own thoughts better, or at least give you a contrast to help you feel more justified and self-righteous in how you think about <laughs> <laughs> Yes. <laughs> no, no, no. Yes. We just wanted yeah. to share it with Joking. you, kind of like yeah. it's it's the thing you didn't know was coming, but now that you've got it, you'll you'll you're really glad you'll never have to deal without. Kind of like the Star Wars Christmas special. <laughs> right. Was that something that happened? Or is that it, just hap- an oh, it happened. Oh, you need Did to really? look that up on YouTube. Oh, yeah. Wow. Star Wars Christmas Universally special. panned as the worst thing that ever happened to the Star Wars franchise. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. You really well, should hope, look it up. Hopefully this episode is not universally panned <laughs> as the worst gravity leadership episode ever. I don't think it is. No, it's great. Uh, I'm eager to listen. I was not a part of this conversation initially, so uh, I'm eager to listen. So yeah, welcome to this. It's yeah. an extra special episode because there's no theme music. There's just people talking. And so let's get into the oh. interview, eh? Here it comes. <laughs> uh, hey, Justin Wallace, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. It's good yeah. to be here. Yeah. For those of you who don't know Justin Wallace... He's a good friend of Gravity's. He's a Gravity coach. He leads cohorts for us. He's a pastor uh, of a church and the Bible Belt. He's married. He's a married man of one woman, just like the Bible says he should be. 
and he's got some children. Justin, anything? Oh, he coaches baseball. Anything else I should say about you? Oh, go Duke basketball. That's all. Oh, oh, you that's do basketball? Duke basketball. Duke oh, Blue Devils. Oh, that's right. The Duke Blue Devils. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there really is like no Jew, Gentile, slave free, Greek barbarian, all one in Christ, unless you're a Tar Heel. And then that's, that's right. That's right. That's right. That's exactly it. Yep. You really have no enemies except for the Tar Heels. That's right. And Kentucky. That, but th- those two are it. It's like, are. yeah. Dude, that's really funny. Uh, all right. So you also, you pastor, tell us a little bit about your church, man. You pastor in North Carolina. Yeah. And tell yeah. us about it. Yeah. So we're, uh, we're the Northeast side of Charlotte, North Carolina, um, in a town called Concord. And uh, it's a it's a suburb of Charlotte, but it is very much still a small southern town. Um, still has that that feel to it, that vibe to it. Um, and uh, so yeah, so our church is called One Life Church. I've been here for four years. Came here in 2016, um, right before the election um, in 2016. And then uh, yeah, I, I co-pastor with my friend Daniel Hodges. Yeah. And um, I love our church. It's good, man. It's a good it's a good place. Good people. Yep. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, and before this, you were also in North Carolina. Is that right? I was. Yeah, I did um, college ministry. My friend Nathan and I started a church for college students at UNC Charlotte called Impact Charlotte. And I did that for just over 12 years. So worked with college students for about 13 years and Love the college campus, have a huge heart for the college campus. So Yeah. So you're born and raised in Indiana, and then you've been living in the South, ministering in the South for 15 years, almost 20? Uh, yeah, 17 years. We moved yeah. here in 2003 when we got married. All right. So you are firmly in what's known as the Bible Belt, and about two weeks ago, you shot me a text, and it said, are you going to vote? <laughs> Yeah. Uh, and I knew immediately you were asking me about uh, uh, the national political presidential election. We've been doing this series right on the podcast about yeah. being an America, uh, being a Christian in America. And um, what why did you message me that? What what were you thinking about? What was going on? Yeah, well, you're one of the people that introduced me to Anabaptism, so I blame this completely <laughs> on you. Um, <laughs> so, um, and I've I've been exploring that for the past couple years, um, and I and I think I've always I've always had felt the tension between my faith and holding a Jesus ethic and engaging in the um, American political system. I've always felt that. Yeah. Um, but it's been even more intense since I've been exploring this idea of anabaptism and yeah. um, and and really talking about um, being a citizen of Jesus's kingdom. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very difficult for me to imagine holding my Jesus ethic and holding my citizenship in the kingdom of Jesus while also playing in this American sandbox. It is. Mm-hmm it's very difficult for me to understand how that works. So that's where my question came from. Yeah, dude. All right. Well, so let's set the table a bit for, for those uh, for whom we're talking insider baseball too. What do you, when you say Anabaptism, what are you talking about? What are you referring to as it relates to, you know, voting or uh, in national politics? Yeah. Well, and, and I have a very limited understanding. So you, 
you got to understand, I did not grow up um, in um, the with the idea of anabaptism. I didn't grow up with the idea of um, nonviolence. Um, I, I grew up. Um, I love my family, have a great family. Both my grandfathers fought in World War II. My dad um, was in the Navy. Um, you know, proud Americans. Like, right. um, we, we didn't, you know, I, I told my wife a few weeks ago, like, I never remember a time where my family had a political sign out in front of our house. That wasn't the kind of, like, patriotism we showed. But we most definitely, like, were a family with deep we were very patriotic. We love this country and my family gave a lot for this country. So I didn't grow up around this idea. Um, and now as I understand it, my, my very yeah. limited understanding is that, that as I take the, the sermon on the Mount seriously, <laughs> I start to wrestle with what does violence look like? What does mm. power look like? Mm -hmm. um, what does political engagement look like? And it seems like what I have known for so long um, stands kind of in contrast to what Jesus has to say and how Jesus even himself engaged with the Roman Empire. So yeah. as an example, I just asked a, a person in our church yesterday, do you think that Jesus would have voted in a Roman Empire election? Now, of course, we all know that there weren't elections, right? Like the, but yeah. the idea was, do you think if Jesus showed up in 2020 that Jesus would vote? And he looked straight at me and said, no. But mm -hmm. this is a person who is very passionate about our political um, system. Yeah. And so I, and I just simply set, look, looked at him and was like, well, if we would say that Jesus wouldn't do this, then how are we living as followers of Jesus? Yeah. That that seems there's something going on there that we're having to sacrifice or or let go of part of our Jesus ethic when we walk into that voting booth. Yeah. So when you use the phrase Anabaptist, uh, this the word Anabaptist came to describe a certain form of sort of radical reformer in the Protestant Reformation. These are people that wanted to rebaptize, right? Anna, mm -hmm. do it again. Uh, baptize uh, people that have been baptized by mostly sort of Anglican slash Catholic slash Lutherans. Uh, people who baptize infants, they, they felt like that was a, um, a, they wanted to separate the state from the church. Yes. Uh, because they saw the state having a different logic, a different operating system. I'm using 21st century metaphors here, obviously. A, a different way of being in the world than the kingdom of God. Um, and initially they were, everybody hated them. <laughs> Catholics, Anglicans, Lutherans all hated them because they all were saying, you guys are complicit in some, uh, in some, uh, antichrist evil operating and in, in systems and structures of governance. Um, and they were mostly burned at the stake, uh, except that today there, today there's, there's two kind of streams, right? There's the. The groups that still trace their beginnings to the Anabaptists, uh, like the Amish, the Mennonites, uh, the Brethren, uh, uh, these are a lot of Anabaptist churches that take strands of that. So, you know, uh, yeah. and then you have Neo-Anabaptists. And, I, you know, Neo-Anabaptists are people that are trying to recover maybe some of that impulse, some of that tradition for a modern uh, world. Some of the more famous, outspoken kind of neo-Anabaptist voices today, maybe we could just say would be like Stanley Hauerwas, uh, 
Mm-hmm. Shane Claiborne is one, you know, about uh, yeah. 12 years ago, he wrote Jesus for President. Yeah. Um, uh, Scott McKnight is someone who says he has Neo-Anabaptist leanings. He's a New Testament scholar. David Fitch, who I know you know, he, he describes himself as Neo-Anabaptist. And he, Lee Camp, a book, a guy we interviewed a few episodes ago, Scandalous Witness. Have you read that book, man? I have not read that book, but I'm currently reading Mere Discipleship. Because Which is amazing. Because like of that it? interview. I love it. And well, it makes me very uncomfortable, but I love it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But yeah, I mean so so Lee Camp is a name I, I wanted to bring up because I listened to that interview. Yeah. And Lee Camp obviously has some Neo Baptist leanings. Yeah. Um, but then he also said that if we don't engage in the political system, it's because of of uh, our like privilege. And yes. so I, 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 that messed with my head Yes, be, because I, there, there's just, this is not black and white. There, there's no like clean answer to this. Mm. And that's where my text came from was, what do we do with this? How, yeah, how do we engage in this? So Lee Camp is someone that, um, I would have assumed like he was going to say, I'm not going to vote. Yeah. I'm not going to engage. But then he says, well, if you don't engage, if you don't vote, then it's because of your privilege and you don't have to. It doesn't cost you anything. So yeah. um, there's a lot of swirling questions that come about. Yeah. So there's a lot of ground to cover here. But the but um, and we could we could talk for two hours about this. But I think that's a great critique or question to put towards people who have a neo-anabaptist sort of Jesus for president kind of bent is that that's a, that's sort of a cop out and it's easy for a white dude who's relatively affluent to just say Jesus for president. Sure. But if you were uh, an, uh, a legal immigrant and you didn't look like a white dude or you were a single mom or you were um, a black single dad, like it's not as easy to opt out because the only recourse you have the only power you have, really, uh, you have a lot more power in your vote than maybe you and I do. Sure. Um, so, yeah. So so then your question, are you going to vote? Um, I already did. <laughs> and now I'm kind of wondering, like, I already I mailed my vote in like a month ago. Um, and now I'm like, I was reading about, you know, Wisconsin just passed this thing that they won't count ballots, mail-in ballots after November 3rd. You know, the Supreme yeah. Court just said. Um, and I saw this guy giving instructions online about how to make sure you get your ballot in, that it will count. He's like, do these steps. And one of the steps, he's talking to people from Wisconsin, was make sure you have a witness to co-sign your ballot. And immediately I thought, oh, crap. Did, was my ballot supposed to be witnessed and co-signed? Now, I don't think it was. I think Indiana, Wisconsin have different rules. But I'm like a little scared that like my vote will, there'll be some way found for it not to count. So that's one level, right? So mail-in ballots have never been more under the microscope than they are now. The next level is, you know this, Justin, from having been born and raised here. It would be, it would take the dead coming out of their graves and walking around in downtown Indianapolis for Indiana to vote any other way but Republican. Sure, yeah. It's it's voted Republican in national presidential elections for decades and decades and decades, and it hasn't been close. Yeah. And so another level of this is, does my vote even count? Mm. Like, what am I doing when I cast a national ballot for president in a state like Indiana? Right? Now, 
Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, do you feel the same I, way in North Carolina I, at all? I do. I do. And I, I used to, I used to, uh, I'm, I'm an Enneagram eight, so I can be a bit provocative. Um, but I used to sit down with political science majors on campus and tell them, Hey, my vote doesn't count. So this is, it's irrelevant. And they would get so mad, like fire and smoke would start coming out of their eyes and their ears, you know? Um, but it, it is an interesting conversation, you know, like, um, in a state like Indiana, um, now a state like North Carolina right now is, is considered a battle state and, you know, it's battleground or whatever, but, um, yeah, I, I I wonder. Yeah, I mean, I know that all of our votes in some way count. Um, it's just whether or not I want my vote to count. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's a different Which question, is, I, right? You, yes. That's a different yes. question. Because it, it, let's say you look at this like there's no good choice. Let's say yeah. you look at the election like you either get to um, – some people look at it like this. You know, you you get to open mouth kiss your grandpa or karate punch your grandma on the neck. You know what That's I mean? Great, great, and, great choices. Well, you know, and when you think about those two options, they both kind of turn your stomach. Now, I don't see it like that, to be frank, to be honest with you. I don't see it like that. But I know a lot of people do. Um, yeah, the question is, do I participate in this choice between two things that I equally hate? Or, or do I opt out or do I vote for something else as a protest vote, right? Do I write in sure. uh, Santa Claus sure. you know, or something else? Yeah, and I, I would just like to say that for me, my, my question is not about a candidate. Like my, my question would be the same question if, if my wife was running for president. And I tell her all the time, it's like Jesus, mother Mary and my wife. So, sure. um, like I, my question is about, is about the system and platforms and, and in order for me to engage, it feels like this. And, and my wife and I've talked about this several times and she's helped me process this. Uh, it's my Kairos. Like yeah. she, in order for it feels like in order for me to engage in any way, I'm going to have to let go a part of my Jesus ethic, regardless of which platform I cast my vote for. It mm. is going to require that that platform will not be united with the full ethic of Jesus. Yeah. So then the question I hear you asking is, what does my vote signify? Yes. Yes. Um, you know, like when you and I, I'm, you know, I was ordained in a certain uh, denomination. I'm sure you went through ordin some ordination process. Yep. When you do that, you have to like basically pledge your allegiance to a creed, to a, a statement of belief and to abide by certain things. Um, does a vote signify that? That's a great is, question. Is, is voting for someone pledging allegiance to them? Yeah. Yeah. Is is it as a significant a, a, a political act as saying Jesus is Lord? Hey, here, let me let me throw let me throw this at you and see what you think, Justin. I don't think it is. Okay. Um. I don't think it is until there would be some kind of critical mass. Or until there was some, unless I was willing to give my life to changing the system, which I don't think can ever happen. Mm. Uh, like I'm, I'm, 
I'm basically, when I vote, I'm rendering to Caesar what is Caesar's. That's the first thing I would say. And there's a lot of questions about that. You can, we can tease that out. The second thing I would say is, uh, one of the, one of the intractable, um, crazy things about the American partisan system is that, uh, and uh, Lee Camp talks about this in Scandalous Witness, is that both, let's just name names, both Donald Trump and Joe Biden are liberals. Mm. They're yes. both neoliberals. And so the choice is between a conservative liberal and a liberal liberal. Yeah. Um, another way to say this is, as far apart as the rhetoric wants to make Joe Biden and Donald Trump sound, they are actually so close together on the whole spectrum of where they could be that it's very, uh, there are very few substantive, like philosophical differences, hmm. right? From a political standpoint. So the second thing I want to say is I don't think most presidents from president to president don't change the democracy that much. Yeah. Right. So, uh, Bill Clinton to George H. I mean, there were, there were policies that impacted people differently. Yes. But they were both neoliberals fighting the war on drugs and a war on crime <laughs> and, uh, which yeah. were dev yeah. devastating. Right. Uh, for many people. Um, but not much changed there, uh, even though maybe some individual policies did. So, so secondly, I think my I think my vote, knowing that not much will change for me as an affluent white person, my my vote then is, um, who for whom does this election matter? Hmm. Whose life will tangibly change depending upon who's in the White House, and as a Christian, should I care about that? Sure. So th those are the two things I'm thinking through. You have thoughts or responses to that? Yeah, I, I, I mean, what I hear in the second option, in the second, in your second thought, is is about character, and I think that's that's been kind of a big, a big question for me is um, the character of the people that we're voting for. Um, you know, for instance, here in North Carolina, our Senate race that we have to choose from is Tom Tillis and Cal Cunningham. I mean, you want to talk about like a no win situation. I mm. I don't know if you've looked into this no. this race, but it is just I Where mean Cal this Cunningham again? this is in North Carolina. And Cal Cunningham just, you know, comes out like three weeks ago and says that he's been cheating on his wife. <laughs> I mean, like I, this is the Democrat candidate for Senate. But then Tom Tillis has like a lot of people would say that Tom Tillis has like been trying to um, turn the Constitution upside down. Yeah, like all these things. And so it's like, man, is there any choice of like, how do I choose? Um, you know, when I hear you say, who is this election going to actually affect on a day to day basis? I say yes. As a as an Enneagram eight, like I am a. I am a justice fighter. Like, yes, absolutely. But we can look throughout history and see that like Democrats have promised things to underprivileged, marginalized, oppressed groups of people and done nothing yeah. for it, nothing to move the needle. Yeah. 
Yeah. And 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 some would say that you can look at the Republican Party and say that they have done some things for it, but then they have it in some ways. And it's just so like it just feels very so convoluted and so there's a lot of hypocrisy. And and that's my biggest struggle is do I have to put a mask on, which is the idea of hypocrisy that Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to have to put a mask on to walk in and cast my vote. Yeah. For to pretend as if, you know, this candidate represents my my Christian faith more or this platform represents my Christian. We hear, we hear this all the time in the South. The Republican Party represents the biblical ideas more than the Democrat. Like, really? I mean, this is what we are. We really going to argue that this this partisanship, these two parties, these two platforms are actually even anywhere close to the Sermon on the Mount. That is not to say that we can't do what Paul did in Greece, in Athens, when he points out the inscription and he calls something good, like he makes something good. There are good things around us. We We can name those good things, but to say that either of these best represent what we see in the person of Jesus to me, is pretty intellectually dishonest. <laughs> hmm. And that's a... I I struggle with that. Um, hmm. Yeah, and I... And I wonder if a lot of people do struggle with that. Um, hmm. So. Yeah. Yeah, so the question then for me becomes like... Um, I guess I don't see voting as pledging allegiance or signing a creed. I see voting as limiting damage. Mm. Like, yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I can, that's one of the things my wife has said to me is she's like, you know, you carry, you carry your iPhone around. It's not, you're not, I haven't, I haven't, Apple computer and I have, I have an iPad. I have an Apple watch. She's like, but you're not pledging allegiance to Apple. And, and I'm like, man, but then she got me yeah. thinking like, maybe I am, <laughs> maybe, maybe that's what I'm doing. And I didn't mm. even know it. And I got, yeah. I got suckered into this whole idea where that's exactly what I'm doing. Um, but I think I don't, Here's another thing. I heard a pastor recently say, um, our primary allegiance is to Jesus. And I I understand the sentiment, but if we say primary, then it immediately brings brings into our mind that there's a secondary allegiance. And that is not what Jesus is interested in. Jesus is not interested in to be primary. He is interested in being our only allegiance to have no yeah. secondary allegiance. Yeah. 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 Um, and yeah. so I, these are, these are all things that I've been wrestling with in this um, election year um, as we have man, in the South, like facing, talking about masks, talking about state mandates, talking about whether the church can meet like there's, who who are we valuing? Who are we worshiping? Who who is dictating our steps? And I'm like, man, I 
I just feel like we've we're looking in a lot of different directions for someone else to guide us other than Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. I think yeah. that's where my, I think that's maybe what I'm noticing. Justin was like, if we, if we are thinking that we can look to one of these, one of these partisan pol- parties to help us follow Jesus, yeah. like we're, we're off, we're out of it. The, the other, the other, solution or answer is to separate the state and the church out totally, which is a bit like the Augustinian answer, right? This is the Christendom sort of turn where, um, there's two, there's two kingdoms, kingdom of the world, right? So you, Justin as a private citizen is not to murder, but if Justin is conscripted into the military and is handed a rifle, then it's righteous for Justin to, to protect the state. Yes. Right. In a, ju- in a, in whatever the state deems as just like, and I know there's a little more complications to that, but, but I, I think that's also a, a place that most people with a neo-anabaptist kind of instinct have problems with that. Right. Cause yes. what if, what if American Justin goes to war and he's fighting against, uh, who Guatemala, let's just yeah. put them out there. Guatemala and Guatemala Juan is a Christian. And, and American Justin is a Christian, and they're looking at each other, pointing a gun at each other. Like, what? Who? Where's your allegiance, man? Yeah, man. Even if Juan isn't a Christian, if he's just made in the image of God. Yeah. So, like, yeah. this is some of the. So, this is the other tension that uh, I think there's a stream in Christian theology and history that we owe a different allegiance to the state, and it's and it's and it doesn't compete with the kingdom. They're like the two separate spheres, right? So the Sermon on the Mount then is for personal piety, not mm. for corporate policy. Sure. Yeah, um, and I think that there's an increasing number of white Christians that aren't persuaded by that. Um, yeah. I don't. I don't think the black church and the brown church have necessarily the similar story that we do, but I think there's a lot of us that aren't persuaded. Uh, I'm not saying what I'm not saying is that we shouldn't care about right. what happens here on earth because we obviously do. We pray that God's kingdom would come here on earth. We we have been given the the responsibility to nurture God's creation. Like I'm so I, I hope that I hope that I'm not I'm I'm not sounding like we shouldn't care about this because we only care about God's kingdom. No, God's kingdom has very real implications to this place where God yeah. has has planted us. You guys talked about that. You've been talking about that in your Sermon on the Mount series at the table and you yeah. talked about that in an episode about the Sermon on the Mount. It does have very real implications. Um it's just I think as as citizens of the kingdom of God, we have a different agenda. Of, we have a different idea, a different dream, a vision of how that how we bring about restoration to the earth. Yeah, and um, and so I think I think in order for us as Christians to engage with this political system, we've just got to be really honest mm. with the tension <laughs> that we're, you know, the the tightrope that we are walking. Um, yeah. And then I yeah. think the other thing as a pastor, I'd love to hear from you on this. Like I voted in 2016 and because of some of my, the, the people that I spoke out for on social media, the 
the things that I shared, everybody assumed they knew who I voted for because of my critique of hmm. the person who won the election. They immediately thought, oh, I know who you vote for. So because they knew who I voted for in their mind, then that made me an enemy of everyone else. Hmm. Yeah. And so as a pastor, if there are other pastors listening to this, I think we uh, we all know this weight of if in this very divided partisan system, if I cast my vote and people start to assume who I voted for, then I immediately become the villain of half of my church. Hmm. So as a pastor, is it best for me? Can I, can I pastor all of my people? If I choose a side and that has created a lot of tension for me over the last four years. Yeah. Right. So is this, so this election season then, is it, are you, um, you weren't at this church in, during the election of 2016. Is that right? I was, no, I was. You were. Okay. Yeah. So are you noticing a difference this election season than last? Um, <clears throat> I'm noticing that, I'm seeing more Christians make noise in uh, support of Joe Biden. I, I am noticing that there is more noise by Christians being made like, hey, we can get behind this guy than there was in 2016. Um, I, I also am noticing there's an elevated anxiety uh, in our church and elevated anxiety in relationships um, in um, this this time around than in 2016. I I don't want to I don't want to blow that out of proportion because 2016 was also very um, very tense here in Charlotte. Yeah. We had we had a police shooting um, that was um, that caused. Uh, riots um, caused um, protests here in our city. That was that happened in September before the election. So there was a lot of tension in our city even before the election. Um, and then we have a global pandemic. We have racial unrest. Like all of that going on now during this election. There's just I don't know if there's a difference, but it feels different. Maybe it's just yeah. because I've been carrying it around for four years. <laughs> it's it just keeps getting heavier and heavier and heavier, you know. And I'm wondering what's it going to be like in four more years. Yeah, you know, I notice a difference for me. Do you? And I think it's yeah, and I think it's because this. I think it's because I think I used to be a little more. Um, I used to be a little more both sides. Like I can see the good on both sides. I can see the bad on both sides. And I tried to play like this kind of morally enlightened third place or middle position. Middle yeah. is probably the wrong word to use. I wouldn't have used that word, but I would have said morally enlightened, like third space. And since then, um, I've become increasingly grieved and agitated by the weaponization of my Christian faith for political reasons in white America. Sure. Like it's, it bought, and so I'm an Enneagram four, right? So my, my bugaboo, my, my uh, sin would be 
I don't want you to associate me with anything I don't want to be associated with. Like, I'm, I want you to see me for who I am. Don't see me as X, Y, Z. So it, yeah. it probably bothers me more than most because of that. But I've, I've just become increasingly heart sick about what I see as... And, and I've done some reading, research, learning about how conservative politics became embedded with conservative white religion and the racial, historical, economic realities that, that cinched that wedding. And, uh, you know, I'm in a conservative yeah. white denomination, Justin. Like, I'm, you can't get much more conservative than my denomination. Um, and I, I'm, preaching on, I'm preaching on taking the log out of your own eye so you can see clearly to remove the speck from your neighbor's eye this Sunday, bro. And I feel like as a whole, white conservative Christians have been more concerned with the specks in other people's eyes than dealing with the plank in their own, the log in their own. I think that's the biggest shift I've made in four years is that I'm, I'm primarily focused on what's wrong with my group, with my people, and, um, uh, and wanting to name what we have to repent of. Yeah. Um, and that's, man, that's got me discouraged. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I think using that phrase heart sick, that's what I, I do feel a difference there. I feel like, I feel like this thing that I've given my life to has been hijacked. Mm. I, I mean, I've been, I've, I was born and fell on the front pew of the church you know like i am i've given i've i've given every ounce of myself to what i Mm -hmm. believe to be the conduit through which the kingdom of jesus comes to the earth which is the church and i feel like it's been hijacked and i for political gain for i mean i just i just heard um a very well-known pastor say um we got what we wanted out of this deal Hmm. I, it makes me just like, even now my, like my chest is so tight Hmm. saying that. Hmm. And, um, yeah, I'm, I'm grieved that this is what the church has become. Yeah. um, Is a pawn in this system. And, and I, I will warn what I, I do think is a warning is that this isn't a Republican Democrat problem. Um, I, I will warn that it would be just as easy for the other side to co-opt this thing and use it and weaponize it. Um, because that's what human history shows. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, and so, yeah. So I'm, I'm, yeah, heartsick. It is, man. It's grieving. Yeah. So I think, I think here's what I've decided to do in 2020 as a, as a, a male white male priest in a conservative white denomination. Um, I've decided to call the people who are closest to me to repentance. I think it's, I just feel like it's shooting fish in a bear. I mean, it's a little too easy and I think it's what's wrong with the world. But I think it's a little too easy to point to 
Latino uh, secular liberals and point out what's wrong with them. Yeah, yeah. I, I just think that's super easy. Like, I, I don't know, like that doesn't, and it doesn't cost me anything because I don't, that's not me. And it's not my community. And when I talk about those people in my community, the work it does is that we feel more right and righteous because we are contrasting ourselves to the godless, secular, liberal, etc. Um, and I just, I think scapegoating and finding something outside of us that's wrong and then demonizing or scapegoating that, I think that's, I think that's pretty close to what's wrong with the world. <laughs> yeah. I think it's pretty close to, I think a lot of what Jesus's cross is revealing and doing is exposing and undoing that mechanism. So it's not, it's not the only thing the cross is doing, but it's a great deal of it. So I, whenever I notice that in me, I want to stay as far away from it as possible because I actually think it's the gates of hell wanting to prevail in my life. Yeah, man. Um, so, so then I'm going to sound like a liberal because I'm calling white conservatives to repent. But that just shows you, I think, how um, in bondage we are to a partisan imagination. That only, listen to this, Justin, think about how psychotic this is. Only liberals would want white, Christ, white conservatives to repent. Why wouldn't white conservatives want white conservatives to repent? Yeah, man. You know? Like, especially when we look at the New Testament, and this is where the New Anabaptist comes to me, and, and the New Testament shows us that repentance is the best thing that could happen to us. Like, it literally is a gift. Absolutely. It's a gift. The people who go away sad and want to kill God are the people who refuse to repent. They're the yeah. people who think repentance is losing, not gaining. And so... Yeah, man, that's where, I and mean, that's, maybe I'll just put, I'll just throw that to you and see what you have to say about it. I want to stand in a, in a tradition, in a group of people, identify with them, even when I want to like punch them in the throat. Like yeah. I'm, uh, I've had it up to here with white supremacy and racism, man, especially yeah. people that are racist and don't know they're racist. But, but every day I choose to stand in the midst of these people as a priest, as a pastor and call them to repentance and uh, I get called, they call me a liberal and liberals call me anti this, anti that, you know, I, I'm a hate monger. Uh, and it's like, I don't know. It sucks. <laughs> yeah, it does. It does, man. I've been called so many things. I've lost, I've lost count, you know, like uh, I, and uh, I've been told, and this wasn't just in 2016, this goes back to, to th 2012, um, I've been told that you're either for us or you're against us. You know, I, I've, mm. um, yeah. And mm. so I, I would, what comes to mind when you were talking about that is, is, um, is triangulation and how we always need a villain and we always need a savior and, and how that is from the pit of hell. When we villainize another image bearer that we turn them into Satan, like we, that's what we're saying. You are, you you are not good <laughs> and and that is just not the way of Jesus instead I, I've been talking to our church a lot about empathy learning mm. to listen um, to love our enemies to learn from one another um, 
you know, and these things are really hard. They're, they are very, very difficult. It would be easier to create, um, it would be easier to create a silo where everyone agreed and everyone um, thought the same and everyone voted the same. And, but that's just not what we see. I've been, I, I've been talking to our church for a year now about the last supper table as, as Jesus is the climax of his vision for the church. Mm-hmm. When you look at that table and you have the two that come to mind all the time is Peter's relationship with Matthew. I wonder how many times Matthew knocked mm-hmm. on Peter's door to take the Roman um, tax and to take his piece too, to put in his own pocket and how many times he cheated Peter and his family and how many times Peter wanted to spit in his face. And then Jesus pulls these dudes around the same table and says, Hey, I'm going to start my church through you. And how scandalous that is. That is Jesus shows us before the cross. This is what my church is going to look like. Yeah. And, um, now it takes, mutual submission. It takes repentance. I had a massive paradigm shift whenever I joined up with gravity about repentance, about repentance. When I worked on a college campus, repentance was the big sign with fire flames on it, you know, like you're going to hell. A weapon. Um, Yeah. Um, but repentance is great news. It's, it's, uh, it's an invitation to come awake to not to be woke, but to come awake to the goodness Mm. of, of God's world. It's, it's, I wonder too, as we talk to, you know, if, if you're listening to this and you're a conservative and you find yourself to be in the Republican camp, that when you are speaking with and engaging with um, someone that may be in the Democratic camp, that that we are inviting one another into something good. If you're on the Democratic side and you're talking to like a white nationalist or a white supremacist. We're, we're inviting them to repent and we're inviting them into a better life. Yeah. Like we, we don't want to take out our sword and slash them and think that the world would be a better place without them. Yeah. We want to invite one another into something so much better. And can we just be honest? We're not experiencing that right now. Yeah. And the church yeah. can be can yeah. offer that There's one, to the world around us. Uh, yes, Justin. Yes, uh, but here's what I'm thinking about, man. And this really is coming to the forefront as I pre- as we preach this sermon on the mount at my church this time. I'm seeing, like never before, how uh, power and status and privilege, um, and everything that goes along with that, how th- that separates me even more from Jesus than I already am. Everything else, right? 2,000 years, language, and societal norms, but also um, the fact that he was of a much different status than me. He was from Galilee, which was a uh, was considered morally suspect, syncretistic a bit. I mean, you had, you had Jerusalem, right? Then to the north of Jerusalem, you had Samaria, and they were heretics, yeah. Then on the other side of the heretics, you had Galilee, which said they were Jews, but they were surrounded by heretics and pagans. And they worked 
alongside of heretics and pagans in different cities. And so everybody in Jerusalem, can anything good come from Galilee? I mean, these are, take every redneck and every uh, gangster joke and like mash them up. And that's what yeah. people from Galilee had to deal with. Add to that, Jesus was dirt poor. Dirt poor. He actually didn't have a house. Right? He relied on women to take care of him. Add to that that there were all kinds of rumors about his scandalous, nefarious birth. Yeah. There's no evidence his dad was even around when he was in ministry. And rumors spread early after, early after his death that uh, a Roman soldier had raped his mom. So, like, Jesus has way more in common with a detainee in a, a prison slash uh, detainment center on the border of USA and Mexico than he does of a, a pastor in a suburb of Charlotte. Yeah. And, and when he's speaking to the crowds, they imagine people coming from like a Native American reservation and detention centers and, and housing projects and uh, migrant rural workers and uh, minimum wage earners all coming together to hear Jesus talk. Imagine somebody who would galvanize those people today in America if Justin and Matt would feel comfortable there. <laughs> yeah. Right? Or yeah. would we feel like you feel when you read Mere Discipleship? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it would be yeah. super uncomfortable. So all that to say, bro, all that to say, when Jesus calls Matthew to come and follow him, um, is there something about that power and status differential that makes that a wise thing or a holy thing for Jesus to do, but maybe not for Matt and Justin to do? And I don't know. Like, I'm still working out, what does it look like to be faithful? Let me give you a quick example, and then we can bounce. This has been blowing my mind recently, too. You know, that, that part of Matthew 5 where uh, Jesus goes through, you've heard it said, do not murder. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. You've heard it said, those things. Yeah. But I say to you, right? And um, uh, the way that uh, we preach through that is Jesus is talking about all the heavy commands that the religious leaders sort of were very proud and very public and vocal about keeping. They don't murder people and they don't, you know, yeah. they don't lie, right? They don't um, do all that kind of stuff. Um, but then, the, then Jesus says, but I say to you, don't even say fool in your heart. Don't even say raka. So the situation that was happening was the people who had the power, the pious people that had the power were keeping these big, big commands and breaking all these little ones. Uh, and so, and so they were actually using the big commands to bolster their own status and privilege and honor, but living in a way that was completely void of the righteousness of God. <laughs> they were using the law to break the law. Okay. Yeah, man. Um, so Jesus says, don't say fool. Don't say idiot. Don't say, you know, turd face. Right. But then in Matthew 23, He's, he's calling the Pharisees turd faces. Yeah, man. Hip, hypocrite. Whitewashed tomb. Brood of vipers. Snakes. Right? What's going on? 
Is Jesus breaking his own sermon? Is the Sermon on the Mount just made us, uh, are we supposed to like get just super guilty? We can't keep all these hard laws and Jesus is demonstrating how impossible it is to keep it? No, dude. He's talking to migrant farm workers and minimum wage owners and people uh, who are looking for their green card in Matthew chapter 5. But in Matthew 23, he's talking to uh, Jeff Bezos. Yeah, man. And he's talking to Bill Clinton. And he's talking to Mitch McConnell. You know what I'm saying? There's a and he's, com- talking, he's talking to me. And he's talking to me. And yeah. there's a completely different ethic, logic, way of confronting and being political, depending upon how power is at work. And I just want to say maybe as we close up, that's what I think the work I need to do, is I need to figure out in what ways does my power and privilege inhibit me from hearing Jesus, separate me from Jesus, and mean that I have to change the way that I improvise and apply what Jesus teaches? Yeah. And, yes. And I think that I think that also impacts greatly how we decide and how, how we decide to vote, how we think about voting, and ultimately who we vote for. I think so, too. All right, man. That's good. There's so much more to say about this. We, yes. I, we probably must spoke 20 times. <laughs> Lord, forgive us. Uh, <laughs> gravity people, forgive us. Justin, I appreciate you. I appreciate your friendship. Yeah. The hard work you're doing to be faithful, even when it feels like a labyrinth. So keep at it, bro. Thanks. Good to be with you. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 